Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's what Willie Dafoe said. With that fucking theme tune, I can't get it out of my head. Anyway, she's a blameless teenager who just had a microphone thrust in front of her by her manipulative dad. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Welcome back, or welcome to Act Two of my chat with the brilliant, brilliant visionary director Dominic Cook. I think these episodes are sort of standalone. If you haven't heard Act One, you could still enjoy Act Two, but you know what? Do yourself a favor. Go back and listen to the first half of my chat with Dominic. It's really worth it if you haven't already. So here we are. We're in the Lyric Theatre Hammersmith, a chilly pre Christmas day in December 2023 last year, and Apple-cheeked young tots are streaming out of the morning's performance of the Lyric Theatre Panto, and upstairs Dominic's fantastically skilled and flashy puppet masters are putting the finishing touches to some huge great battle sequence in his soon-to-be-announced production of the stage show of Game of Thrones. And downstairs in a conference room, he and I are having a lovely chat. All right, here he is, Act Two of Dominic Cook. Mr. Cake and Mr. Cook, we have the house for Act Two. Beginners to the stage, please. Lights up on Act Two of Stage Door Johnny. I had an interesting one, though, because I, I did a play, which I probably wouldn't have done, wouldn't do now, because we've moved on, we've evolved as a, as a culture, but I did a play by August Wilson about Oh, I don't know when it was. Marley's I could tell you when it was. It was seven years ago because I was 50 while we were doing it. Marlene's um, Black Bottom. Marlene's yeah. Black Bottom. And brilliant cast and a really great experience doing it uh, in terms of just a great play and a wonderfully committed group of actors. But I had worried about the ending and I sort of... Someone's killed at the end of that play. I don't think that's a spoiler. And I sort of was like, is, hmm, sure, I quite believe it, but I didn't... I just, there was something in me going, ooh, I'm not sure this is the moment to push that actor to where... And then my partner came, who's really good at giving notes. He doesn't give many notes, but he's often... Alexi K. Campbell. Alexi K. Campbell. Noted playwright. <laughs> he's a playwright, a playwright. And was an actor. Right. But he, he just said, oh, I really loved it. He came to a preview. He said, I really loved it, but I didn't quite believe that someone had been killed at the end. And I thought, oh, God, I really needed that. I just needed someone to remind me mm. that that's what I'd felt. Mm. I'd sort of got used to it. And so I went in the next day, maybe done two or three previews, and I just said to them, let's just do it. We're going to do our house now, and I want you to do what you, what you would do if someone was killed in front of you or you killed someone. Mm. And I don't care about the blocking. I don't care about anything else. That's all I want you to do. And, of course, it did lift up. They were ready at that point. To do it, and right. it changed the show completely. Right. Because you really did feel like that happened. This business of going there 
whatever that means, mm. you know, sort of, sort of really inhabiting the thing that is the emergency, the, the really difficult bit that you said brilliantly. You had that lovely chat with Sophie Okonedo uh, at the National when everyone was locked down. It was very moving, you two old... You met in Swiss Cottage Library. We did. We, know, we knew each other way before all of this. And yeah. you fly out to New York to help her when she's <laughs> struggling with Denzel Washington. Well, she wasn't though. struggling, as it turned out, wasn't. but I she was very happy was. to go. And now you've just directed her in this magnificent Day, not very long ago in London, I had this lovely chat on stage, and you talked about the things that, that most pissed you off in, in the rehearsal room was when actors won't go there, they'll sort of obfuscate by telling stories or jokes or, or being belligerent or sort of, you know, questioning direction, because it's a sort of unconscious or conscious defence mechanism from really inhabiting it. And you talk a lot in your... It's another thing about my research. It's probably unfair to quote all this back at you. But you talk a lot about that business of authenticity. And I suppose this is what you're describing when we're moved, right? Whether you just recognise yeah. a quality of human authenticity. In fact, you use the word shamanistic oh, yeah, quite a lot. Which yeah, I think I is a magnificent yeah. word for sometimes yeah. when you see actors, there isn't, there is some vessel that they are... You know, they're expressing something through. You can really sense that. There's an extraordinary clarity of something passing through them which feels human and mm. universal. Do you ever feel inauthentic? Do you ever feel unshamanistic when you're working on something? I think less so now because I probably am better at going, I'm not going to do that because that's not the right project for me. Like there's the marketplace, isn't there? And the marketplace is quite corrupting. And yeah. it's very hard when you're a younger person. I think this applies to all of us to make decisions that are right for you, i.e. a project you can bring something to, I think is probably what I mean. So, um, no, not so much anymore. I mean, I try not to bullshit. And if I don't know the answer, I'll try and say, or I'll go away and think about it. I mean, maybe I'll get defensive. I mean, not sort of obviously in the way that we would think of being defensive but I will think defensively I will come up with something and I don't really believe in and hopefully the next day I'll go well that, I've got a better idea I, I mean I can be quite sharp in rehearsal because I sort of sometimes feel that the, the strategies people can use to avoid being vulnerable is what I'm talking what I was talking about in that yeah. situation the strategies people use unconsciously often to avoid being vulnerable can be tiresome you know they can yeah. be tiresome and yeah. sometimes I'm like no stop it Right. Sort of thing. I'm not rude, I try not to be rude, but I can get a bit sharp when yeah. I feel that there's sort of an avoidance going on or a sort of time-wasting thing or something that I don't get. In fact, on the last show, there was a little moment with that, and I'm like, what is this? We're just spending hours talking about something really <laughs> trivial. It's so trivial. What was the last show? Uh, the Rock Follies. Rock Follies, yeah. Just um, and you sort of go... I mean, I, I suppose the really sensible thing is to work out what the real problem is, because there normally is something underneath all of this. Yeah. Um, I think actors are so perceptive... I think being an authentic as a director, they just fucking know. They know yeah. if you're bullshitting. Yeah. I mean, you'll have been in those situations, I'm sure. Oh, they do sort of know sure. because that's what their that's what their craft is is recognizing and seeing and looking at something and having a response. So, and they tend to be bright as well as like emotionally perceptive. So I don't think you could get away with it very long if you were doing that a lot. <laughs> Let me ask you about something which I'm feeling keenly at the moment because my daughter, who's who's 14. And sings the theme tune of the 
podcast. Has just oh, been yes, feeling which this. is marvellous. Bless you. It, it just pisses quite a lot of people off. I was actually humming it because I listened yeah, to well, a few of them. you can't not them. hum it. Yeah, I listened to a few of the podcasts when we first started about, uh, first started talking about doing right. it and of course it gets in your head. That's what William Defoe said. With that fucking theme tune, I can't get it out of my head. Anyway, she's a blameless teenager who just had a microphone thrust in front of her by her manipulative dad. Anyway, she is a singer, and as one of other things, and she's she's just done this big thing at her school. This music is very big at her school. She did this public performance of a Bonnie Raitt song, and she got huge amounts of love and kudos for it. But afterwards, she felt very complicated and unresolved because she didn't think she did it very well and I'm very struck by this idea that as artists we carry around the only thing we have which is our own internal sort of bullshit monitor and yet at the same time we do something that's public for other people and we don't necessarily know objectively whether something was good or not do you struggle with that? Does I think. That I think. To you, well, I think for actors or anyone who performs live and a musician, that is a real problem. And um, I think you've sort of got to learn to let it go and just trust that, providing you do your sort of preparation, you do it. When you walk away, you go, "Well, that's that." As I've started doing film, one of the cruel ironies is that you know you do a setup, you're on an actor, you turn the camera around the other way, it takes an hour and a half, and suddenly they do something magnificent that they should have done or they could have done before, and that's just the way it fucking goes. And actually, what they did before was good; it's good enough; it's okay; it's okay. You can't, you're not machine. You can't just make yourself, will yourself, do something. There is there is a certain alchemy that occurs at certain points. And I think actually Sophie's very good at this. She's really good at, uh, I've watched her over the years as a performer, just going, I did it, you know? Being trusting the moment. Um, I think as a director, it's not so much about your performance at at that point, is it? It's about a series of decisions that you've made over a relatively long period of time that lead lead to where you end up. But of course, then there's a whole lot of other stuff that you're not in control of, what everyone else brings to it. But I'm very, very harsh about my own work. Are you? I find it very hard to watch. And my biggest, my sort of Waterloo as a director is going back. I hate going back after press night with a passion. I mean, it's really bad. I should go and see a therapist and just focus on that. It's so bad that I can almost feel ill the hot like for two days before or cancel. I cancel a lot. <laughs> I mean, I do really think it's important for a director to go back in theatre. Yeah. Because the actors need you there. And and uh, I do, I'm very much of the belief that I would say, you've got to keep discovering. I don't want this to be, I don't hate that thing you get often in American theatre of, we're freezing the show. And what the hell does that mean? Right. You can't freeze a show. Right. There might be certain elements that sort of need to be you know, there for the actors, but the actors have got to be able to find yeah. new things in it and stay alive. Otherwise, it's, it's no yeah. point. But I, I really think it's important to go back and make sure that, the, you, you know, or, or, or keep moving it forward. But I find it really, really painful because I once I've got to the point where I've sort of got the show on, it's cost me quite a lot and I just can't do it. <laughs> I can't it's it's cost you quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, how, in what way? Well, I just think, I suppose I, I make myself vulnerable by doing it. And I think that's essential. Yeah. I really do. I yeah. think you've got to be vulnerable. I think it's true of any director of film as well. You know, you can't go in. I mean, I know, you know, directors can project sort of uh, an image of sort of um, yes. having the answers and knowing what they're doing. When they do. They have to have some vision. But they don't know what's going to happen. Right. There's a big chunk of it, they don't, and they don't know how it's going to be received. 
I mean, the great thing about doing film is you stop at some point and then it's done and there's a thing there and it exists beyond you, whereas live theatre is constantly sort of, is much more vulnerable. Um, but I but I do find it, I think I put myself on the line and I, I sort of, I think to the press night, I, I think this is where I have to be dug in and really go to that point. And because I think like that, beyond that, I can't even... So there or because you can't really affect its trajectory. No, you can, you can, okay. you can. I think you really can. I think a couple of really good notes for an actor in sure. the middle of a run can be fantastically yeah. uh, creative right. for them as well. Right, right, right. Because you know what it's like. You're doing a run, even a short run. You can, you know, you can go down a, a path and and actually a, 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 a sort of perceptive note can really help yeah, yeah. And, and actually make it enjoyable again. Or... So is it about going back to the vulnerable? Place? Yeah, I feel what I do is I just look at all the things that don't feel right or look at my own failings right, very right. hypercritically. So it comes back to what you were describing about your daughter. I do that, yeah, yeah. not at the time, yeah. but afterwards. I do yeah. exactly that, and it's horrible. I mean, I don't like it, but it's totally irrational. I mean, it's... <laughs> But it also might be the thing that makes you so very good. I mean, I know we we shouldn't. We should be much more like Sophie Okanedo, who who really can give it up. I, I I know that about her too. That she's, you know, I'm sure it costs her an immense amount, and yet she can also say that was that night. Tomorrow we do it again, or the place finished, and that was what I did. But there is something also, maybe quite. I don't know. I struggle with this terribly myself. So I feel very like my daughter, but maybe there is something quite good about a vigilant internal monitor who yeah. won't accept. No, I think I agree. Something below your own. And that's the terrible conundrum of it, of it all, course, isn't it? Of course, of course, I mean, that's why all of us, even those of, those of us who are really lucky to have to make our livings out of what we do, which I may never forget that. I because I spent a long time not doing that, and I sort of I never take it for granted. But at the same time, you go, the only way you can do this and do it well, and it's tr- as true of director as it is of a, an actor and of a writer, is to feel the fear and do it anyway sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. You have to experience vulnerability yeah. when you're doing your work. Yeah. If you, if you, I've seen it, and I remember, in fact, it was very instructive. When we were at the RSC, there was a sort of middle band of actors, some of whom uh, had been doing it for a very, very long time, and they'd just come back, and they just had a way of doing it, but they never put themselves on the line. Yeah. And the work was boring. You can see that they're sort of good actors, but I bet you were brilliant a while ago. But they just sort of found this mechanism for stopping themselves from feeling vulnerable mm. because it's too difficult. Mm. They had a regular job and they'd just turn up and do the job. But it's sort of, I have a horror of that yeah. and I don't know how to do it. Yeah, that's really funny. I don't actually know how to do it. But, and I think also perhaps as you get older, anxiety is a, it becomes worse generally. I think that's probably true of most human beings, yeah, actually. Yeah. But I don't. I. I. I've. Lo- I've sort of accepted that you have to be. You have to go through that. You can't make a good piece of work without a little bit of suffering, unfortunately. Gosh, you're the first director who's <laughs> talked about the cost of yeah. doing it, of, of of the vulnerability of doing it. That's so brilliant. Well, fun enough, I was speaking to another director the other day who was saying, you know, one of my contemporaries was saying the same thing, was in previous and was going, oh, God, I was up all night last night <sighs> in previous working out how to get this show to work. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. I, in fact, I speak, I have a couple of mates who are directors and we, we often go, why, why do we do this? I mean, I know that sounds so... When I think about no, saying that and there's some young director who desperately wants to work yeah, yeah, and doesn't yeah. get the opportunities I get, it sounds like sort of very spoiled. But I, but I think that is the nature of what we do. Of course. All uh, success comes with hazard. And yeah. And it must do. And I suppose 
it's just the difference for me is you being honest about it or, or sort of yeah leading with that idea about not going being able to go back very easily yeah because there's something a bit traumatic about doing yeah that. there is for me I mean everyone has their little yeah, weakness course. weak points and I, I don't obviously I don't feel it I can't go into the room with a bunch of actors or even a designers or whatever and go poor me I'm terribly upset <laughs> you sort of have to this, go in this by the way is going to cost me everybody <laughs> exactly just want you, you to can't... know you have to be take responsibility for your role and lead as much as you can and help everyone in the room. But that doesn't mean it, you should. I think it'd be wrong if you didn't have some moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what it's like in rehearsal. I mean, actors go through this. You sort of start. You know, there's always some point in rehearsal where you think, "Oh my god, either it's going to be a disaster, Week three. or I'm going to be a disaster." Week three. Everyone else is brilliant, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. It's, it's, it is it's sort of unfailingly. Yeah, it's just you're that, like, always. You, know, you start off thinking, yeah. oh, "I'm going to be rather good at this." <laughs> Second week, you're just sort of getting used to everything. Week three, you're like, I have no fucking idea how to walk and talk at the same time. I don't know how anybody does it. This is a disaster. Is I, it too late to go to Bruges? Um, the listen, Bruges option is listen, always there. I've got to. I've got. I've got to let you get back to the pub. It's the incredibly important pubs, as we've now just established. But it would be sacrilege and wrong not to ask you about your collaboration with Carol Churchill. Alan Bennett is, you know, t- to to Nick Heitner and and Richard Eyre uh, has David Hare and I suppose Peter Hall had Harold Pinter. I think it's fair to say that you you and Carol Churchill are. Uh, well, I'm very director. delighted to be associated. I mean, I think James O'Donnell's probably done more of the shows than I have, um, and I don't think you know she's exclusive in that way. But I mean, Carol was one of the reasons I do what I do. So I, I still get huge joy out of thinking of myself as a collaborator and friend because I am in huge admiration for her, not just as an artist as I was before I met her, but now I know her. I'm sort of I said to Lindsay Turner when I left the Royal Court, we all need T shirts with what would Carol do stamped on them because she is an amazing human being. She's utterly authentic. I know that word is very overused, but she is her own person and her values are in in my opinion the right place. No, I love... I mean, I was drawn to her. I think I had some sort of seminal experiences watching her plays as I was sort of sort of in the university age because I didn't know I wanted to direct at that point particularly. Right. But I remember seeing a, a very good student production of Cloud Nine, which mm. I think is a masterpiece, Amazing. and also a production of around the same time of Top Girls and going, it's that sort of ability that she has to sort of talk about something that no one's talked about before in such a precise way yeah. and open something up where you recognise yourself and the experience in a way that is is sort of so fresh and um, powerful. And impossible to be bored. I mean, yeah, you know, I think business so. of formal innovation, yeah. of, of intellectual searchlight yeah. going around a, a, a subject. And this business of just restlessly recreating the stage in front of you all the time. Yeah. The last one you did was, here we go, Yes, it was the last one. At the I, National. It was, yeah. The last yeah. 15 minutes of which are wordless. There's the dressing and undressing of by a carer. Yeah. Oh, it's about death, right? Yeah, the, the, it is. Broadly yeah. speaking. We'd both have been through death experiences. She'd lost a very good friend of hers, which I think was one of the inspirations um, of that play. And my, my mum had just died. And we were sort of talking about death a lot. So it sort of led naturally into us working together on that. Um, that business of, of um, dressing and undressing this, this old, frail body I found so when I reading about it I wish I'd been able to see it and I must see a production of it whenever it happens again because interestingly Zadie Smith when I interviewed her was talking about the washing of a body 
on stage and how she had been trying to write the washing of a body in prose. And and then she found herself writing the washing of a of a corpse it for a theatre piece and how much more dynamic it was on the stage when you can see mm. the fight we started off talking about how mm. you know about stage violence and how it was predominantly a, mm. a form about language mm-hmm. the theatre mm-hmm. but actually when you have images that are as potent as mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. and they don't need language yeah. they, there is something uniquely Electric. Yeah, yeah, it was very powerful, but it did piss people off. Did it? <laughs> well, I think what we were exposing them to was the sort of bleakness of that experience of someone sort of being towards the end of their yeah. their days. But I think formal innovation does make people very angry. Mm. I mean, I did it with the last, was it the last show? One of the last shows I did at the court was a play by Martin Krim called In the Republic of Happiness, which yeah. is a real sort of formal, I mean, I loved it, but it was completely out there. And by the on the first preview, we lost something like, 40 audience members with no interval and they it was a very sort of performative anger that was going on you know flipping the seat up yes. in the middle of the road pushing past Loud and, and it, it was sort of I think it, it was the fact that the innovation in it sort of rather than them leaning into it and going oh what's going on here in the way that you would if you were looking at a Rothko painting or something like that mm-hmm. you, there was this sort of sense of I'm being made to feel stupid and people can react very strongly against that. Yeah, yeah. I think the theatre, you said this again once in an interview, it's uniquely antagonising, isn't it? If you feel, for whatever reason, you are trapped in an auditorium, though no one, of course, ever is witnessed the Martin Grimm play, you know, but you feel this sense, don't you? The liveness of it. It's not like watching a bad TV no, programme no, or, or, a, no, or a movie. Yeah, yeah. If the liveness of it and the fact of this sort of shared contract or something feels like if it's not what you want, the yeah. anger that it can produce. Yeah. But don't you think there is something? I was made to feel terribly queasy at the end of a recent production of of, of Merchant of Venice. I mean, like reaching out into your stomach, queasy about what I was being asked to do, which was stand up, basically. Yeah, and part of me felt how manipulative and difficult I don't necessarily want to do that I'm not entirely sure the production has earned this moment and also as in Peter Brook's amazing formulation the great plays are like planets they they orbit closer to us sometimes mm-hmm. depending on what yes, we're thinking yes, of about course, of course, and yeah. before October the 7th yeah. in in Gaza in Israel I might not have felt so gut move, churningly queasy about oh. standing up in this particular moment oh. But the play had expanded its power out through the appalling events mm. of the modern world mm-hmm. in a way that actually was also incredibly thrilling. Yeah. The feeling that a 400-year-old play yeah, could still speak, speak make you feel yeah. that. So all those people who are huffing and flipping the seats up at Martin Crimp, there is also something, isn't there, which is activating. Yeah. Which I'm not advocating, you know, people go to shit theatre and the, for things that feel make them feel bad and walk out. That's obviously not what theatre is for. But it is for that business of reaching us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I think, I think, when, I think when you talk about that, I think about the fact that there's a sort of... I get annoyed if I feel people are abusing their power. So, so in terms of what, what I've given them. So I've bought my ticket, or sometimes I haven't even bought it, but I go in and they have... They're given a status and a place and a you know and a voice, and I sort of feel like that's where man- manipulation really or exploitation really bothers me ah. because I feel like there's a reciprocity in that. 
you know, yeah, and you have to sort of respect that. So if I'm being sort of manipulated too much or sort of made to join in with something that is sort of exploitative, I find that, I personally find that quite difficult. But I, but I think the major sin with theatre is boring people. Yeah. I'd rather be offended than bored any day of the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I certainly wasn't bored in this production. And I, as I said, I really felt, honestly, ultimately, I felt grateful that I wasn't able to park the, the play somewhere. Yeah, yeah no, that's good. That's really I good. Felt, I felt great no, that it had something. really got to me yeah. in a difficult way, you know. Yeah, no, that's good. You know, I know you're very close to Carol and, and, and you know, you've been involved in, to this point, this very difficult furories around some of the some of the pieces that she's written and last when was it last year she was being offered this big theater prize you know this that that, the the european theater prize right from a foundation in germany which then got rescinded at the last minute because of her support uh you know for palestine it was support for boycott and disinvestment bds that's right yeah. yeah exactly and that is, a, it's really complicated, isn't it? And I suppose that I'm not sure if there's a question here, but I suppose the question would be, how much is it possible for someone with very passionate beliefs in the theatre, like Carol now, do you feel like we, are, we live in a time where there is a reception for a voice as singular and as dedicated to a point of view as hers. I think the problem is less about the reception and more about the sort of... For, for say, 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 an emerging writer like Carol now, yeah. I think the self-censorship is the problem. Yeah, right. I think that happens a lot because people fear saying something that will get them cancelled. And when you look at what happened to Al Smith, who wrote a play at the Royal Court, which in which he was accused of being anti-Semitic as a young writer, right. I mean, what happened to him was appalling and the theatre didn't stand by him for the first time in its history in my opinion but that's a whole other story yeah you can see why people were nervous and why they would be and I think that is worrying because I don't think Carol ever of that generation would ever have worried about saying something they believed in on stage about the consequences and if there was if there was an outcry if there was they'd go sod it I believe in what I'm doing the consequences now are so sort of grave for people, i.e. Yeah. your working life will be stopped if, I, if you say certain things. I think it's having a potentially... I think we'll sort of hopefully find our way through it because I think people are sort of going, sort of questioning this now. But generally speaking, I feel that writers especially are very, very um, nervous and, it, and, and it, fear and creativity are opposites. I mean, I know we talked a bit about fear and there is a certain amount of fear that can be right-sized that actually is part of the process. But I sort of think if, 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 if you're trying to create something from scratch and then the first thing that comes into your head is, oh, can I do that? Am I allowed to do it? I think that's not a good thing for the arts in general. I really do. I think it's, it's very, very inhibiting and it's very conservative. Ultimately, that's the irony of it. Yeah. It's incredibly conservative because all that happens is people create work that just says what we already know. And that's not useful because it doesn't move things forward yeah that's brilliantly put so so i mean i do fear and i'm glad i'm not young now sort of in all beginning of my career now because i think i think it is it is very hard to sort of face the potential or the possibility of at the beginning or early on in your artistic career and sort of having the rug pulled from under you 
I don't mind so much now because I'm older. So if I did say something, I mean, I did do a play with Carol that was extremely controversial, but I would do that play right now without question. There is nothing about doing seven Jewish children I wouldn't do today. Because in fact, every time I watch the news, I go, she was right, wasn't she? And that's why she created such a furore because she did nail something that people don't want to own, which is about trauma, which is about the recycling of trauma. That's a whole other conversation. We could spend hours talking about that. But I think and it's easy for someone of my age and experience to go, well, I, you know, you can hire me if you, if you want to or don't. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. easier for me to, to make that decision. But I think for a younger or emerging artist, I, I just wonder whether someone like Carol would emerge now. My gosh, what, what extraordinary. You know, and there's some great talent. I don't want to do down on the talent out no, there, no, but no, I just no, think no. the choices, it's much harder to make those choices. Yeah, it's really fascinating and scary and chilling and all those things. Last question, very last. You said in that lovely chat with Sophie, you think of yourself as a slow burn artist and that your best is yet to come. And I, I love that sense that a life and a career, particularly an artistic one, is a continuum that you, you add to your store all the time. Hopefully, I'm sure you lo- we will lose other things too. But that wonderful thing is sort of an accretion of all you know and feel and have experienced and everything else. So what have you learned? Is it, is it, is it possible to ask what have you learned recently that has changed how you think about your work? I think that's incredibly hard to answer because right. I think a lot of it is unconscious. Yeah. One thing I became aware of, and it was, it was because I was working at the court and I was exhausted and unbelievably stressed trying to, try to run a theatre at the same time as, and produce a lot of work at the same time as direct, was that I was recycling as a director rather than treading new ground because I didn't have the resources, because I was so exhausted. I didn't have the resources to take the risks I needed to take. Right. And I think since then, and it's partly because I've worked in working on screen as that show, I think opened up a lot of doors to me creatively in the theatre, ironically, that I, I now feel much more confident about sort of going, oh, I really don't know quite how to do this, which is why I should do it. So um, a lot of the work I've been doing recently has been doing stuff, you know, pushing into stuff that I feel much less comfortable with, which I think is a really important thing for an artist. And there are, I mean, I look at Sam's work at the moment on theatre. I think it's Sam Mendes. I think it's really exciting what he's doing at the moment. I think he's doing some of his best work, and I think it's partly because he's doing that too, in his own way. Or someone like uh, Jamie Lloyd, who's someone I gave a gig to very early on, who sort of was treading that particular path. And he's definitely gone in a very specific direction, but it's quite exciting to see someone going, oh, right. I'm dropping everything, you know, yeah. and actually it's opening doors creatively for him. And I think that thing of not, you know, you get to a position of, say, both those artists or me, and you get to a place where you know, you know you can get a job, you know, that you do then keep exploring the form and uh, don't become um, fearful of doing that. So that's, that's the main thing for me. And I, I feel like I'm in that place at the moment. I know when I get tired and when I get stressed or too anxious, I stop taking creative risks and I think I've learned that over the years so I watch out for it mm. don't do too much work if you can afford it mm. that's part of it if you work too hard you can't do it you become risk averse I mean, at least for me anyway Dominic since we first met each other when we were young young men in Stratford-on-Avon at the RSC to now when we're slightly older men it's been such intense joy to see your brave brave bold, totally risk-taking, making us pay attention. It's just been wonderful to watch your career 
grow. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure. Always happy to talk about myself, you know. <laughs> Never a problem with that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ladies and gentlemen, Dominic Cook has left the stage door. Dominic, thank you so much for... Rolling back the years since we first met in 1992. My God, how long ago is that now? 1992? We are 2024. Okay, so that is the small matter of 32 years. Yeah, not much. Oh, it was great. It was really lovely talking to Dominic. I thought he was so wonderfully open and truthful and honest about all that stuff. I'd just like to make one little clarification about the production of Merchant of Venice that I saw, which was at the Minerva Theatre in Chichester. It's um production starring Tracy Ann Oberman as Shylock, and she's still doing it. They're still doing it. Tracy Ann had the conception for it, I think, based on her mother and grandmother's experiences of being immigrant Jews or children of immigrant Jews in the East End of London, fighting Mosley's black shirts in uh, Cable Street in the 30s, and how incredibly scarring that was. And what I really meant to say, which I'm not entirely sure came out in our discussion, was how when we were compelled, not compelled, invited to stand up in protection of this Jewish family at the end of the production, there was some way in which I felt like events in the world had complicated my response to standing up against anti-Semitism, which any right-thinking person, I think, would want to do. I felt like the events of the world at the moment, events in Gaza, had just come into the room in a way that I really felt was a, it was a huge tribute to what the production was making me feel. It felt like it had shaken off, as I said in my chat with Dominic, it had shaken off all the dust of 400 years since it was written, and suddenly it was a play about now. And it wasn't just a play about Cable Street or the experience of British Jews being oppressed by black-shirted thugs in the East End of London, it became a, a much bigger even, much more complicated idea. And that is only a tribute, I think, to the production. The production, by the way, which is terrific, one of the most crystalline and lucid productions of Shakespeare I think I've ever seen. I understood every single word that every actor spoke, which is not something you can always say about a Shakespeare production. Anyway, I just wanted to sort of clarify that. If that indeed is clarification, it was complicated for me and uncomfortable in some ways, but also really felt like the play was suddenly live in 2024 in a way that, as I said, is an enormous tribute to everyone involved in making it. It was all the desperate complexities of everything we feel at the moment, watching the news. God. Anyway, 
Thank you so much to Dominic. Thank you so much to my producer, Ben Backhouse. Thank you to the musicians, Iggy and Phoebe Cake. Thank you to the stage manager. Thank you to you for listening. I'm really grateful for your support. If you can like, subscribe, rate, review, do all that, it's huge. If you can just bring yourself to to engage with the bits underneath the podcast, it really, it really helps. Next week, uh, my guest is another terrific director, someone I've worked with. He is currently directing Macbeth, starring Ray Fiennes, which I think is in London now, but it's been touring around from Liverpool and perhaps Edinburgh too. We talk about it. Simon Godwin, he is just a fantastic director. Tune in for my conversation with Simon next week. I hope I see you then. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees plays sad and funny. That's stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny He knows that there's no money Being stage, stage door Johnny Stage, stage, stage door Johnny Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.